But if you'd like to turn to uh, Exodus chapter 19, and if you're using the church Bibles, uh, that is found on page 60, Exodus chapter 19, and I'll read verses 1 to 6, and then we'll go to Acts chapter 2. The first, Exodus 19, verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, And tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now, if you turn to Acts chapter 2, which is on page 911 in the church Bibles, Acts chapter 2, and this is a passage probably familiar to many of us, Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 40. This is uh, in Jerusalem on the Feast of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit had come upon the people gathered there. Peter had preached a sermon, to which we'll come back, and Luke continues the narrative in this way, beginning at verse 40. And with many other words, Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Well, you might want to keep that passage uh, open in front of you. But um, let me ask you this. What is the church all about? Who are we meant to be as a church? Now, here at Edinburgh North Church, these kind of questions inevitably arise as we are praying and considering how to search for a new minister. And so those types of questions will be asked, but of course answering them is altogether a different uh, matter. Uh, Do you remember the children's rhyme? Remember how it goes when we say, what is the church? Here is the church, here is the steeple, and what happens? Open the door and 
see all the people, see how nicely they get along with each other. If only it was that straightforward and easy to answer, what is the church? Well, it may be difficult to answer, but it's not impossible. There are answers with which you and I can begin to approach this question. What are we supposed to be about? Who are we meant to be? It's not impossible. And so, to, I think, to, to try to help us answer some of those questions, I want to take us for the next three Sundays into some of the early chapters of the book of Acts. We're going to look at three different churches. First, this morning, the church in Jerusalem. Next week, the church in Antioch, which is in Syria. And thirdly, and perhaps surprisingly, at the end of the book of Acts, I want us to look at the church in Rome. Each is important for us. Each is different from the other, though it shares well, a common Lord, a common Savior, a common gospel. But we'll see in the book of Acts that when it comes to answering what is a church or the church, there's both unity, but there is diversity. Now, the question is, well, why, why Acts? Why are we looking at this? Well, Luke, as you know, is, or was rather, um, I mean, probably still is, a companion of the Apostle Paul in some of his missionary journeys. And he wrote a two-volume work, volume one, the Gospel of Luke, and volume two, what we're looking at, the second volume, the book of Acts. Together, uh, they communicate an overall message, but each is distinctive. For example, Luke's Gospel if you were to look at the very beginning, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, Luke states quite clearly that the purpose of his gospel is to assure his reader, readers that this Jesus who was crucified and yet raised is the Savior of the world. And he extends that now into volume 2, the Acts, but with a slight pivot. In, in Acts, he's saying, Jesus is the Savior of the world, including the non-Jewish world, even though he's not physically in the world. So Acts is, is essentially not the Acts of the Apostles and, and not really even the Acts of the Holy Spirit. It is the Acts of Jesus continuing to be the Savior of the world in the world. And as he saves, he collects and builds up his people, the church. So on one hand, we could say that Acts is describing Jesus' work which is the church. And therefore, to, to help us understand better who, why, and what the church is, over these three Sundays, we'll take an overview. <laughs> I'm saying to Janet, it's sort of like we're going to fly at 38,000 feet, and occasionally, like a pilot, I may ask you to look out the left side of the aircraft, and occasionally uh, to look out the right side of the aircraft. I want to suggest that an overview actually will give us a more detailed picture, interestingly enough, than if we just drilled down into one passage per se. So, so let's, let's crack on. Let's look at and begin with the church in Jerusalem. And let's start in chapter 1. And the first observation that we'll see as we look just at the beginning, in fact, <laughs> the first five verses of chapter 1, is this. The church is built upon the apostles witness to Jesus. So Acts chapter 1, in verses 1 to 5, probably just let your eyes glance over that, the risen Jesus is giving proof and has been giving proof to his followers, particularly his disciples, that he really was alive. 
He spoke to the disciples about the kingdom of God. And he is showing them and teaching them what they need to know. This is the the touchstone. His chosen apostles were eyewitnesses of his death and resurrection and were taught what his death, resurrection, and now ascension is going to mean. You can see that particularly, as I said, in verses 1 to 5. But in verse 6, at this point in time, however, the disciples, the apostles, didn't understand exactly what was going on. They ask uh, in verse 6, are you going to restore the kingdom, all the Old Testament promises, right now? And Jesus says, no, you, you don't understand what is going to take place. You will receive, in verses 7 and 8, you will receive the promised Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who will empower you to be, in verse 8, my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now keep in mind that to witness is, has, a, has a very kind of court uh, connotation to it. To witness means to bear witness to what you have seen, but also what you've heard and the meaning of what you saw and heard. Jesus will not physically be with them. He ascends in verses 9 and 10 and 11. He ascends to, to in glory. This is important. It's not just to heaven. He's ascending to the right hand of God, a position of power. And from heaven's power base, if I can put it that way, he will continue his saving ministry, but now through his chosen apostles. In the spirit, they will witness to others. They will testify to what they saw about Jesus' ministry, his death, his resurrection, and now in verse 11, his ascension to the position of power. And in fact, the witness of the apostles is so central Uh, that the apostles know there must be a replacement to Judas. Look ahead to verses 21 to 22. Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. See, in the book of Acts, others will speak about Jesus. Others will be evangelists. The apostles were not the only evangelists, but the evangelism that Jesus pledges to bless and use and prosper is the witness of his chosen apostles. Their witness is Jesus' ongoing work in the world. And for that ministry, the Spirit now in chapter 2, long promised, arrives at Pentecost, which then leads us to the second observation in this uh, overview flight. The church receives the faithful fulfillment of God's promises. See, Luke begins his gospel strikingly with faithful Jewish people waiting for the Jewish promised Messiah. It's critical to see that. In Acts, Luke tells us the gospel that God is keeping, that is promoting, begins with faithful Jews in Jerusalem. It's very important to see. This occurs in in Jerusalem during the Jewish feast of Pentecost. Pentecost, which is a celebration of the first fruits of a harvest. But now, says Luke in chapter 2 of Acts, oh, there's a harvest now that no one expected but had long been promised. 
The Holy Spirit fills these Jewish women and men in Jerusalem, Acts 2, verses 1 to 12. And in so doing, the Spirit of the Lord begins the great reversal of what we read about in Genesis chapter 11, the, the Tower of Babel, where human arrogance, where human hubris wanted to come up and, and establish superiority, but was judged by God. Now God in his kindness comes down, pours out his spirit so that there be a universal, not a universal language, but a universal proclamation of the good news about his son, the Lord Jesus. They are, chapter 2, verse 11 of Acts, declaring the wonders of God. <laughs> what does this all mean? And then we watch Peter stand up and give his first sermon. Citing the Old Testament prophet Joel, Peter says, the coming of the Spirit is what God has always promised. This is no plan B. This is no, whoops, it didn't work right the first time around. Let me try a new act. No, this is exactly what he has promised. So Peter begins this quotation from the prophet Joel, but he inserts, chapter 2, verse 17, he inserts in this recitation of Joel something that wasn't in the prophet Joel. Peter now inserts on this Pentecost the phrase, in these last days. Peter is saying history now is no longer the same. Now an extraordinary earth-changing series of events will take place as the Spirit is poured out on God's people. And the most miraculous feature? Well, it's there in verse 21. And everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone, not just some from one ethnic group or race or nationality or social position, but everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. But why the name of the Lord and who is this Lord? Well, it's verse 22 of chapter 2. Jesus, the God-accredited man, not only because of his miracles, but precisely in his death and resurrection, verse 24. God raised Jesus from the dead just as centuries before King David prophesied, verses 25 to 35. Again, we're flying at 38,000 feet, but what's Peter's point? Well, he sums it up in verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Here is what God has achieved, because this is what God always promised. The church is the recipient of God's kind, gracious promises being realized. God has not failed, despite his people's rebellion over centuries. He's not come up with a new idea. He is fulfilling. From eternity, he has purposed to rescue men and women in his son. And, says Peter, now you're seeing it happen. Pentecost marks God's faithfulness to his promises for the well-being of his people. So here's the third thing that we now see. We see the church is the people of God. It's so blindingly obvious that I miss it. The church is people. In many ways, the early chapters of Acts, and you may be familiar with them, in many ways, the early chapters of the book of Acts actually echo the calling of Abraham and his heirs. 
And there are also echoes of Exodus and particularly the book of Deuteronomy. God calls, God rescues, God blesses people, people. And we really shouldn't be surprised because throughout the Old Testament, and again, it will be expressed now in remarkable ways in the New Testament, the refrain that God delights to say, and I, I guess you could say, the, the, the piece that he's always wanting to emphasize is, I will be your God, and you will be my people. But what kind of people? And now, now we come to our passage that I read from Acts chapter 2, verse 41 to 47. Notice in that passage how Luke is kind of bringing together what had happened at Pentecost. He describes the Lord's people. They are, if you will, the Lord's people are those who respond to the apostles preaching about Jesus. That is, that is fundamentally important. They are responding to what Jesus' chosen disciples taught by him, what they have preached, verses 38 to 49. And they are those whom God calls. Do you notice in verse 41? Those who are added to their number. The people of God adhere to the apostles' teaching. They display a fellowship, verse 42. There is awe and wonder among them, verse 43. There's kindness. And there's a flourishing generosity that's amongst them. And that, that really echoes what God called Israel to exercise in the book of Deuteronomy. The people of Israel were meant to be this caring and sharing and financially uh, enabling each other as had need. Their generosity is actually spirit-prompted, not forcefully compelled. You're going to see that later in Acts chapter 5 with the story of Ananias and Sapphira, whose premeditated selfishness is catastrophic. So the people of God in Jerusalem, do you notice, continue to meet in the temple. Where else would they meet? They're living in the fulfillment of, God, of what God has promised to his ancient people. And they continue to be a people of praise. And they were winsome. They were people among whom God added more people. And the word to underline is people. Because you know this, the English word church, uh, which eventually came from Greek and Hebrew words, connotes a people who are set apart, chosen, called out. And we, we, we really shouldn't be surprised by that. From the opening pages of Genesis to the closing pages of Revelation, God's artistry, God's kindness, God's purpose is expressed in his desire, I will be your God. I will be your God. It's okay. And you will be my people. And I'll make it happen. And that's okay. That's a good thing. He says it far better than that, but you get my point. And fourthly and finally, the church shares Jesus' suffering and resurrection power. This is an alarming reality. The church shares Jesus' sufferings and resurrection. Yes, there are some miraculous signs performed in Jesus' name. Uh, chapter 3 now, Peter heals a crippled beggar. And you notice in chapter 3, verse 10, 
particularly the emphasis that um, Luke reminds us. There they recognize this crippled beggar uh, as one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. Because of this miracle, they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Wonder and amazement. And yes, the apostles continued to perform um, many miraculous signs. Chapter 5, verse 12. And the apostles preached the gospel. And there's a powerful response or effect of that preaching through the power of the Spirit. Yet, opposition comes, doesn't it? First from the Jewish religious leaders in chapter 4. And the church in Jerusalem, though, when I look at chapter 4, they knew what was coming. They, they were not surprised. This neither surprised them, nor did it deter them. Chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. And notice their prayer there. They don't ask that it stop as much as they ask that nonetheless you would give the church courage to keep on proclaiming. But as they share in Jesus' sufferings, sufferings which will increase, chapter 5, verse 17, and of course, as you remember, uh, this initial persecution of the church will culminate with a martyrdom, the killing of, of Stephen in chapter 7. Nonetheless, they are strengthened by the Holy Spirit. Again, looking back at chapter 4, verse 31. And in chapter 4, despite the, um, the, the attacks and persecutions, Luke again shows us that this was a tight-knit community that was filled with a wonderful generosity, kindness, body life, if I can use that language, which was, was marvelous. In fact, it's so marvelous, we'll come back to this guy. Chapter 4, verse 32. Luke just sort of, in a tantalizing way, just sort of brings on stage very briefly this guy named Barnabas. And look where he introduces Barnabas, about whom we'll see a lot next week, right in the midst of this frightening context of, of, of attacks and persecutions. And you will see that he will play a key role in the spread of the gospel. Yes, the church is persecuted and dispersed, chapter 8, verse 1 to 3. We'll come back to that next week. And this scattering or dispersion is led by this bully boy named Saul, about whom we will read more next week. But Luke tells us the church looks vulnerable, yes, but the church shares, not only in the sufferings of Jesus, but in the resurrection power of Jesus. And again, we'll return to that next week. Now, Let's see if we can bring things together. And again, as I said, we've been flying at 38,000 feet, and occasionally we looked out the left side and occasionally the right side, and you're wondering, when will he land this plane? Well, let me see if I can do that for us now. What do we see here? We see that the church means people, God's people whom God rescues according to his eternal faithfulness and promise. What occurs in Jerusalem kicks off these last days. A new era now has come. The old exists no longer. The future is not yet, but the now is closer to the not yet than it is to the past. There's a crucial pivot in history these last days. God's people gather around the apostles' witness and teaching. A community emerges. 
with deep sharing and caring. And God's people are filled with the Holy Spirit. They are Jewish people in God's Jewish city. But things will not stop in Jerusalem. So what about us? What about us here at Edinburgh North Church? You know, there's a a very, very long, long tradition amongst Christian circles that that say, let's go go back and let's be be a New Testament church. Let's be a church like in the book of Acts. Um, I'm not sure that's easily done for all sorts of reasons. And likewise, to, to try to, if, if, if you could, jump over history and tradition and, and what God has been doing ever since. There's something important, nonetheless, to ask. Does Luke simply want us to try to imitate what we see, for example, in the church in Jerusalem? I, I wonder. And instead, let me see if I could suggest what I think Luke wants us to see. First, do we know what time we're in right now? Our lives, let me see if I can explain it. Our lives are being swept up. Even our ordinary lives filled with ordinary human experiences. Our lives, do you know what time this is? We are being swept up into something absolutely extraordinary. Something bigger than us, while it includes us. You see, it isn't simply that when we become a Christian, Jesus, Jesus comes into our life as much as it is when we are converted by God's kindness, we are being swept up into His purposes, what He is doing amongst humankind and all creation for His coming glory and honor. We've been included in something remarkable, Yes, it includes our individuality and the particulars of our life, but they're all part of a much bigger and even more beautiful tapestry which he is weaving. Do we read what's going on in our individual and corporate experiences through that lens? We must. Secondly, look, we, we probably, if, if we were to to have an honest conversation. It, we, we probably have different views and opinions on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But do we long that the Spirit would continue to develop amongst us here a community life shaped by His power and kindness through this glorious gospel that produces in us a generosity um, that strengthens us so as to, to not only be a people here that love and care for one another, but witness to the rest of Edinburgh. I mean, I think we do. But a greater intentionality would surely be our aim to ask the Lord by His Spirit to increase His work amongst us. Thirdly, will we make the apostles' witness and teaching central? I, I think we do but we mustn't take that for granted at all. We will, and, and this is important as well, we will have different opinions and preferences. Do you know, gospel unity allows for diversity. 
And it's okay, although it can be messy often. But our unity must ultimately be measured by the apostles' teaching and witness. And that would be true for our witnessing and our evangelism. That which Jesus promises he can use even the likes of us in Edinburgh is when we are creatively and contextually nonetheless faithful to the apostles' witness. This isn't to uh, dismiss church history or historical theology. You know, we can still be thankfully Presbyterian. (laughs) It's okay. But only in as much as that tradition keeps us under the apostles' teaching. And fourthly and finally, do we know how to read the times? I don't mean the times of London. Do we know how to read the times in which we live? Do we understand that the normal pattern The normal pattern of the church life is one marked by both the sufferings of Christ but also the resurrection power of Christ. How do we read our time? Church history can show us we're not living either in the worst of times nor the best of times. Church history can can show us both the warnings and encouragements. And history can show us that we are neither the most important players nor are we insignificant to the Lord Jesus. But we ought to pay attention. So, what is the church? And what are we supposed to be about? Come with me over the next, uh, well now, next two weeks as we look at the church in Acts. There is a lot to see here. We can, we can actually take heart, even if we're not clear about everything. We can, we can recalibrate our priorities if necessary. Uh, we can keep hoping, thankfully. Because, you see, we're, we're part of something far bigger than a, than a children's rhyme. We're part of what the Lord in His kindness and goodness, but sovereignty is doing in our midst. That will help us begin to see who, what, and why the church. Lord, let me pray for us. O Lord, we beseech Thee, let Thy continual pity cleanse and defend thy church. And because it cannot continue in safety without thy succor, preserve it evermore by thy help and goodness. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.